0: take your Bibles and turn to Ephesians chapter 4. We'll be back in Ephesians today after Easter last week. We'll be verses 30 through 32 at the end of the fourth chapter. We'll be looking at those. I hope you had a good week. I did. I got to go home. I haven't been home in years. And so I went to Orange, Texas. I was taking my parents' ashes to Orange. My brother and I are going to have them buried at the Branson Cemetery, where we were all buried in Southeast Texas, so had a chance to do that, and uh, got to go to all the sites from my high school, which no longer exist. Couldn't believe my high school's totally been torn down. Of course, it was ancient when I was in it, so they got rid of it, and uh, we did went to Grandpa and Grandpa's house. It's empty now, Hurricane Harvey. The water in their house would have been above my head in Port Arthur uh, with the floodwaters, and so the house is now ruined. They're just sitting there empty. One of the neighbors, who I did not know, he came there after my grandparents left. He came over and gave us the full history of everything that had happened, so we had a great visit with him. And then my brother and I decided to finish it up. We, we went for the first time together to my sister's grave since her funeral nearly 40-something years ago. It ended up being a good time standing there, a chance to re-talk really through some things, My brother didn't finish well with my sister uh, before her death. Uh, She had called him a couple nights before she died. She had been drinking. She was drunk and she wanted to talk to my brother and Keith had had it with her and he said some things I'm not, not allowed to say in the pulpit so I won't repeat what he said to her and then hung up on her and that was his final words. So he and I sat there and we talked through that and I'm more pastoral at that point, trying to help him as we work through everything that happened. I had a chance to tell him some of the things dad and I had talked about just before dad died, about all that was involved in that. So it was very good to be with that. And then I learned something that I'd forgotten. Uh, my brother said, I want you to see a video. And it was my dad. And it was done about 10 years ago. He was at my brother visiting and he got to talking. So Keith got his phone up and started videotaping. And I had known this, but it totally left my mind all these years. My dad led his dad to Christ. My grandfather was a crusty, mean-spirited kind of guy. He kicked me once because I was blocking the TV. The Cowboys were playing, and you did not get in front of football. And he literally kicked me and knocked me down. And I, I do remember that. I had not forgotten that, that he did that to me. But... It it was amazing to me because it kind of fits my sermon today. My grandfather said to my dad, son, I raised you and I didn't raise you well. How did you turn out to be such a good man? What is it you have that I've never found? And my dad shared the gospel with him and my grandfather came to know Christ And I knew he was baptized when I was in junior high, but I never really got all the couldn't remember all the stories. So for me it was just a good weekend. You know something about going home, I don't want to live in orange anymore. I have no desire to go back, but just home still home after all this time frame. And then I finished up a good week by coming home and I now have my state championship ring. So I'll wear it for one second and then I'm gonna put it up because it'll slide off and I'll hit one of you with it. You'll end up brain damaged because the thing weighs a ton. I'm not see if I can sell it on eBay and make some money like the pros do, but I doubt it. <clears throat> but since I was going to be gone all week, I started preparing the sermon on Monday morning. I usually don't do that. Monday's kind of a rest day for me. It always has been doing some administration in the church. But I told Jan, I said, let me have Monday morning to myself so I can get ready. And so I am sitting there working on this. And I'm, I do translations from the Greek to English. I do a bunch of research. I do, a, I do a mind map of the passage, It's just somehow I do things. So I've got everything all over the place with these software now that you can use. And while I'm doing that, and I have my iPad there, a text drops down. And it's from my secretary in San Antonio. And it simply says, Mr. GW is in hospice now. And so I flicked it up, went back to studying, and I just couldn't keep studying so finally, I text my secretary back and said, send me his number. I, I may have it, but I need to talk to GW. And so she sent it. I had the correct number still in my, my phone for my years of pastoring. And so I called. I thought he was at home, but he's in Veterans Hospital in San Antonio. And when he answered the phone, he said, Pastor, how are you doing? Because he had my phone number he recognized when the call came in said, I'm fine. How about you? He said, oh, I'm doing good. You can't ask. Life can't get any better than what it is. I said, well, GW, understand. He said, yeah, you're right. I'm, they've, they've called hospice in. But Steve, I'm doing well. He said, you and I have to be the two most blessed people in all the world. Your kids have turned out so well. And my kids have turned out better than I could have ever expected with me being their father. And he said, my wife, we're, we're happy. It's just good. Aren't we blessed? And he says, I know you're blessed because you got Jan and she's better than you ever deserved and stuff. You know, he'd have to rub that in just a little bit at that point. And we, we, we sat there and just talked. <clears throat> and I, I just sat there amazed. He has colon cancer and it's everywhere on his body. He just found out this week. And so they're sending him home to die He will always be special to me and I'll give you two reasons because this does fit where I want the sermon to go because this is going to be my challenge to you at the end that you be a GW. He had the sweetest spirit I've ever met among a man and he's a man's man. He's military. He's tough as nails, but not a kinder, gentler man I have ever encountered. Psalms 23 will never be the same to me because many years ago in ICU, at the Catholic hospital in San Antonio on Babcock. We go up to see Jim Pauling, one of my deacons. We went there to anoint him with oil and pray that the Lord would bring healing to him. The deacons, all of us went up to do that. They had requested it and so he showed up. And so we're standing there and Jim's in bad shape. And even after we finished praying, Jim just said, you know, the Lord just confirmed in your prayers, it's time for me to go home. But we're sitting there getting ready to pray and Jim looked at GW and said, GW, read, read the passage. And he knew what he was doing. And GW read Psalms 23, and I will never forget. It's never been the same to me, anybody else reading it. What I, how just his voice, how he said it, the presence of God at that particular moment. And ever since then, my understanding of Psalms 23.1 has never been the same because Psalms 23.1 starts with, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want And GW stopped and said, you know, I could stop reading right there. We don't even need the rest. If we're resting in him, it's okay. I have never forgotten that. That was GW. I had one bad business meeting my entire life as a Baptist preacher. It was at Village in the early days. Village was deeply split when I went there. It was some of the toughest stuff I've ever had to deal with in my entire life. And we really had a bad business meeting. I was able to shut it down. I had a man who hated me from the moment I walked in. There was nothing I could do to ever make him happy. And so he came up after the meeting, and we're down front. I'm coming, or excuse me, in the back. I'm going out the back. I just want to leave the auditorium. I don't want to say anything. I'm a little upset as a preacher, and we're not allowed to get upset. Uh, it's just our, what we have to do, our job. And so I'm just trying to get out of there for a minute. And this guy walked up, and I won't repeat what he said, because you can't say it in church. He could, but I can't. And I did wrong at that moment. I turned and I pointed at him and you could see in my eyes fire. And what I was about to say would have not have been good. Might have cost me in the long run being pastor. Walking by me at the moment I turned and pointed my finger was Mr. G.W. He said, Pastor, I need to ask you a question. I said, okay. So I turned. What do you need? Let's go in the foyer. So we walked out in the foyer Let's go outside. I said, oh, I must be serious. So we go outside. Let's go across the parking lot. So we walk across the parking lot. Let's go down to the shed. We have a shed at the very end of our six acres, just out there in the middle of nowhere, no lights. We walk out there. He looked at me and said, you have a good night. <laughs> I told him later, you're the best thing ever happened to me. You were a blessing at that moment when I really didn't have the strength nor want to, to do that which was right. That was the kind of man he was. He said to me the other day, you know, Scripture says in Psalms 90:10, if you get to 70, that's pretty good. But if you get to 80, it's because you're strong. He said, Pastor, I'm 83. Must have did okay. I made it to 83. And he said, you know, here at the, at the VA hospital, the hospital staff, the janitors, the doctors, the nurses, everybody's so good to me, better than I ever deserved. That's not normally why I hear from veterans at the veteran hospital, but that's GW. And at the end, I finally said to him, we were on the phone for a long time, just reminiscing. I said, I'll talk with you again soon. He said, no, you won't. We will talk again, but we'll do it in glory. Thank you for being my pastor. It was an honor and privilege of serving with you. And I said, GW, thank you for your service. as a military veteran, but more of all, thank you for your service to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And that was my final, will be my final words probably for him. I will go for his funeral. I ever intend, no matter what my schedule is, to be there. Men like that is what made my job so much fun. Men who truly lived out the things of Christ. So that's going to be my challenge. You stand with me now because we're going to look at what we're all supposed to do because we're all supposed to live this way. And here's what it says in verse 30. This is the fifth command. There've been four. If you remember two weeks ago, this is the fifth one. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit. That's the command. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has also forgiven you. Father, speak to us in a clear way today. Help us to walk in a manner that does not grieve your heart, but brings joy to you as you watch your children walk in a manner that is pleasing to you. So teach us this day. Move our hearts to want to to walk in a manner that brings you this kind of joy in your life. So, Father, guide us, teach us, lead us. It's my prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I call this the warning. It's about the only time I really think there's a warning here. Most of it's a call to goodness and moving forward and doing good things. But at this moment, he stops for a moment and he's going to reference the Holy Spirit. I don't know if you know this because I've not hit it that hard going through the, in Ephesians. But the, the Holy Spirit's referred to over 30 times in the book of Ephesians. The impact and influence of the Spirit in our life. But I'll give you three of them. It says this in the first chapter. You were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. That's part of our salvation that the Spirit of God sealed us and was a down payment. So that we know that our salvation is secure and that one day we'll walk into his presence. We learn in chapter 2 that it's through the Holy Spirit that we have access to the Father so that when you pray, it's the Spirit who's at work within you to give you access to the throne of God. And then in Ephesians 5.8 is the command that we'll deal with later that every one of us in this room are to be filled with the Spirit of God on a regular basis as we walk through life. So he's referencing the Holy Spirit, and what he wants us to know is because of his impact and influence in our lives, the one thing we're to be careful of is that we do not grieve him. And this is a command. It means to distress, to make sad, to feel pain. It's used several times in the New Testament to maybe give us a little bit of insight. When Jesus went to the Garden of Gethsemane, and I've always wondered what the night was like in the Garden of Gethsemane when he was there, because I have been in the Garden of Gethsemane, and it's right outside the East Gate on the Kidron Valley on the other side of it, and it's real steep through there. There's some, still some trees that were probably there. Whenever Jesus walked in there, literally, they think one of the trees was in that time frame. If there was no sun moon that night, it would have been pitch dark in that area. But whether it was or not, the disciples were there. Jesus leaves them on the side. He goes to pray. And it said he began to be grieved and distressed. Grieved, heartbroken. What he's about to face? The blood that comes uh, from his head during those time frames. The stress, everything's there. Jesus was deeply grieved by all of that. Later, it's used in another way. Peter meets with Jesus on the Sea of Galilee, right next to the town in which he grew up in and would have fished from. He'd gone evidently back home. Jesus meets him there at Capernaum, and they're out on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, and he's going to have a conversation. You know the conversation. Peter Do you agape me? Do you love me? Peter, I phileo you. You're my friend. Peter, do you agape? Do you love me? Peter's response, I phileo you. Finally, God says, do you phileo me? And Peter at that moment is deeply grieved. But you remember what he did. He denied him. This is our first real sit down and let's have a conversation about this. Since his denial. And the Lord's going to do something special in his life. But a man who has betrayed his best friend will have the most difficult of time getting over that for the rest of his life. And so the grief for Peter here is very, very real. You have felt that grief, but you may have felt it this way. When Paul writes a church at Thessalonica, he tells them, I want you. I don't want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who've fallen asleep. So you'll not grieve as the rest do who have no hope. The loss of loved ones brings grief. Every one of us have been through those moments, the sadness of losing a loved one. And either with age they've lived a good life, they're gone, but there's still grief over that. Or in a tragedy that might have unfolded, the grief is very real. And I've walked with many of people through the loss of their loved ones. And I've been there when many have died. And I've seen the grief. It's real. It eats at the heart and it makes us sad and everything else. So what we're called to do is make sure that when we live our life, we do not bring this kind of grief to the Holy Spirit who has sealed us, who lives within us, who guides us, who directs us, who's ever present with us. And this passage is tied into Isaiah chapter 63, verse 10, which says this, but they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. Therefore, he turned himself, become their enemy, and he fought against him. It's God against Israel in the wilderness. They grieved him the Holy Spirit it says in Isaiah to the point that God then caused judgment to fall on those. Now what did they, how did they grieve him? Well the way, some of the ways, the numbers tells us ten times in the book of Numbers that they rebelled against God. Ten times in the book of Numbers that they, out in the wilderness they rebelled. Some of them what they did was they complained about the food. We had better food in Egypt. We had a Grocery stores there. We go. I don't know if you have H E B's here, but I'm from San Antonio, so H E B's. We could go get everything we wanted. Now I don't understand. They're complaining about the food because they got to eat donuts every day. Manna is sweet bread. It's like having donuts or cake, but they, they didn't like it. And they come right and they complained about. It. We want meat. We had meat back there. God had provided them so well it was unbelievable. But yet they complained constantly about that. They complained about Moses' leadership. There were some men in the, among the nation that we have as much right to lead and we're better than Moses at doing this, Korah being one of them, and he re, brings a rebellion against him, and the people go with them, and they all challenge Moses over and over and over. There's only one problem. God didn't pick one of them to be the leader. He picked Moses, but the people didn't like God's choice, and they complained over and over. I don't know how Moses survived all of those moments when they came against him and his leadership. His character must have been pretty amazing through all of that. But that's one of the times they would rebel against God. And the other time was whenever the giants in the land, they sent the 12 spies, right? Two came back, Joshua and Caleb. It's ours. Those guys will be easy. But the other 10 said, you ought to see the giants. They're huge. They're probably nine, 10 foot tall going by Goliath. They're they're real stories. These are real men who live, huge, huge men that lived during that time frame. They came back and said, it's not going to work. It's not going to work. And that brought grief. It said it grieved God in the desert that this people were responding this way. See, you bring grief to God when you rebel against him. And ways you show rebellion against him is some of the things we've just been looking at over the last couple of weeks. Whenever you speak lies and don't speak the truth, you're rebelling against God. Whenever you let your anger out of complete control hurt those around of you, you're in rebellion against God. Whenever you steal or don't work hard and don't do what God's called you to do, We're called to work every day, take care of our own business, provide for our own families. When we don't do that, we're in rebellion against God. And when you speak negative about people around you in the community or anything else, you're in rebellion against God. Those are literally the things that were causing Israel to rebel against Moses, rebel against God, and to say some of the things they were doing. And so when you do that, you bring grief to the Father in heaven. And these Old Testament stories, the writer Paul said, these things happen for examples for us. So we did not crave evil things as the people there craved evil things. 1 Corinthians 10 goes through a list of things of rebellion that the people did against God in the wilderness. What Paul's telling the church at Ephesus is, I want you to live in such a way that you don't bring grief with the Father and the Holy Spirit, but you bring them joy. When I'm 19... I'm good at bringing grief to my mom and dad. Just my life. I kind of understand that when my boys got to be 19 and 20 years of age. I kind of know what the grief of a father is when he watches sons do things that are foolish or rebellious or anything else. But when I began to grow up finally, especially because of my faith in Christ, my whole attitude towards my parents changed. You know, the day came when I got my doctorate from Southwestern and I graduated. We were at Travis Avenue in Fort Worth for graduation. It was filled. It seats three or 4,000. And I'm up on the stage and I've got all the doctoral hoods and all the stuff for you paraphernalia you got to wear. And I come across the stage and Dr. Dilday was president at the time and I shake his hand. They hooded me. I took my diploma. I turned for just a moment to look out at the crowd But as I was shaking his hand, I happened to look up into the balcony, and up in the left corner was mom and dad, along with the rest of the family. But I could see them, and I could see their faces. And I know what my mom was thinking. I cannot believe he made it. I cannot believe he made it. But there was such a joy. I have never, I still can close my eyes and see that. Best moment of my life. My my sons later said "Anytime my mom would bark at me and I would jump up and I'm 50 years of age, go do whatever she said at their house when we were visiting. You're scared of your mom. No, I wasn't scared of her. I want to do whatever it is to make her life better. I'm not home much anymore. When I get home, I want to make sure it's better. That's what you and I have been called to do. Let's not grieve God. In a moment, we'll see why. But we don't grieve him. So what we do is we don't lie. We speak truth. We get our anger under control. We stop stealing. We work hard. We watch the words that come out of our mouth and we try to build people up because what we're doing is we're getting ready for the day of redemption. It's the only time that phrase is used here, but we're getting forward to the day when Jesus comes in all of his glory. Now, I've never been one who pays much attention to what's happening in the world. And as a preacher, I never was one to say, get ready. I think the signs are happening. He's coming. I'm starting to change now. I just know some things. I've been talking with a, NSA people this week on some texts back and forth. Some things got me fascinated. So I've been listening and watching and responding back to that. So I don't know if we're closer or not. I kind of feel like we could be. But one thing I know, it's coming. We're a day closer today when we rolled out of bed. But there's a day of redemption coming when we walk into his presence and we will be with him forever. I want to be ready for that. I want to be like GW was as I was talking to him the other day. He's ready. Lived a good life, but he's ready. Whatever God wants to do, he's ready. So what do we need to do to get there? What do you need to do to make certain this is how you live your life, that you don't bring grief to the Father or the Holy Spirit? Well, look at verse 31. Let all bitterness, let's just stop right there. Resentment is what that means. It's envy. It's anything that brings this bitter taste to your mouth. My son recently said, Dad, uh, if you want to be even healthier at your age, you need to drink apple cider vinegar. It's okay. I'll try that. I've never tried it. Don't take a shot of it. Put you to your knees. It's worse than a shot of vodka or anything else at that point. That's got to be the worst stuff I ever... So I tried it with juice, and I tried it with water. I'd I given up. I'd rather die. <laughs> I really would. That, that stuff is so bitter. But, you know, we joke about it, but I got rid of it. I don't want it there. We're told to get rid of the bitterness in our lives. You know the story when Peter went in Acts 8 and led a lot of people to Christ. There was Simon, the magician, was there. And he comes to Christ, and he supposedly accepts Christ, and he's falling around. And then he sees Peter do miracles. Well, he's a magician. And magicians, we use trickery. But Peter's not using it. He said, where'd you get that power? I want that power. How do I get that power? Peter looked at him and says, you're in the gall of bitterness. And you're in the bondage of iniquity. Bitterness is bad news. It is stuff that we hold onto that we will not let go of that happened to us in our lives. Job said this, I am saturated with bitterness After all that happened to him for a while, he struggled with bitter thoughts about what he was going through. Bitterness is real, and it can happen to any one of us in this room. That's why the writer of the book of Hebrews says, see that no one comes short of the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up. You're going to go, preacher. you don't know what's happened in my life. No, I don't. But in another sense I do because I've counseled anything and everything. I'm not surprised by anything I hear anymore. Yeah, but you don't know how bad somebody hurt me. Maybe I don't. You don't know what happened in the military when I'm overseas and what I saw and what I did. No, I don't. But why are you letting it ruin your life? Too often, we let those experiences in our life and, you know, my mom, my mom's dad was bad news. I only met him once or twice. It's not easy to say this, and I don't say it very often, but he was, he was. I could say, an evil man. Slept with all these women, was an alcoholic, gambled, beat the kids up. I could go through hard. I just did the nice stuff. I didn't even do the bad stuff. My mom, when I was 11 years of age, for whatever reason, we, my dad came in and said, pack up. We're going to Michigan where she's from. And we did. We drove all the way to Michigan. And from, I didn't know why. It was none of my business. I just saw along for the ride. But my mom went home to apologize to her dad for being a bad daughter. Lord had been dealing with her. So she found her father. It's the only time I've ever seen my grandfather in my entire life was at the age of 11. Never talked to him. I just saw him from a distance, and my mom went up and sat talked with him a little bit, and I'll just say it he blew her off. I can't say what he said back to her again. Mom turned around and came back. we went home. My mom was never the same woman ever again. She was a good lady. She began to change her entire life. She will tell me later on in life when I do understand things like this. She said, "Son, I was so bitter at my upbringing." I had to at least say, oh, my dad, I was sorry for what I did. Didn't expect an apology back from him, but I did what I needed to do. And God has put a peace there now. And she went from a pretty tough mother to a more loving and caring mom after that. And I had a great mom before it was over with. So I know what bitterness can do. I know how it can eat at us. And every one of us has to battle this. But my question to you is, no matter what's happening in life, why do you still let it control you? Why do you still let it have that kind of impact on you? Because it doesn't make you happy. It drags you down. It ruins you. In fact, bitterness does something. In Hebrews 12, it says this, no root of bitterness springing up that causes trouble, and by it others are hurt. Our own bitterness will eventually be taken out on everyone around us. So Paul says, you want to not grieve the Holy Spirit? Get rid of the bitterness. Let it go. You say, What's well, easy to do. Do it. I'll give you a story in a minute from the Bible of somebody who did it dramatically and your story doesn't even begin to touch the story in the Bible and he let it go. But we're called to do that. And when you let it go, look what is a part of it. Wrath, that's a passionate anger where you've just, oh, I've had it. Or gay is a strong anger. It's not the losing of emotion, but it's just strong. You're ready to go no to nose, toe to toe in a fight. Clamor is when I get loud and I holler and I shout. We see that on our TVs now and our, in our, among our politicians. Everybody's screaming and hollering at each other. It's just showing this bitterness and anger so deep within us and then slander, false accusation against others. I'm of the opinion that looking at this passage, if I deal with the bitterness and understand what I've now have in Christ Jesus, the rest of that will vanish. It'll vanish. Because the bitterness, it causes that to unfold. And bitterness, which is not controlled, leads to malice, which is the last thing. Malice, you can, you can translate the Greek this way, depravity, wickedness, evil. It leads to the evil. I think that's why we're seeing the evil we do in our land nowadays. Because the bitterness of lives, homes, and brokenness, and everything that's gone wrong within our country over the last years. And that has led to what we see unfolding in the most dramatic of ways. Malice always follows bitterness. And we're not to live that way. See, we've got, we're to get rid of everything that belongs to the old man. We're now new people in Christ. So let me give you the story now in the Old Testament. You ever heard of Joseph? How'd you like to be Joseph? You want a dysfunctional family? Go back and look at his family. There were four mothers in that family and a dad who wasn't overly strong. And he loved one woman more than the other three. One he really didn't care for. And she named all of her children on the anticipation by their name that maybe now Jacob would love her, which never quite ever really happened. The brothers were not good men. They weren't good at all. One slept with one of the women that Jacob had. Two butchered a whole family of people. In fact, their dad later, when he blesses them, will not bless him with a good blessing because of their anger and their cruelty of what they had showed. This was not good. And then here comes Joseph along. He's just a teenager. He's young. Probably a little bit brash, don't know, but strong. Lo- Dad loved him, gave him a coat that stood, stood out among the others. But the brothers hated him with a passion. And you know the story that when he went to check on them, they wanted to get rid of him. They got, wanted to get rid of him. And they did. They intended to kill him. When the brothers hadn't showed up when he did, Joseph would have been killed. But in God's providence, that was not going to happen. So they sold him in slavery to Egypt. Turns out in there, he gets a pretty good first little job. Pot- he's at the Potiphar's house, influential. But then he is accused of sexual assault, which he did not do. And he's in prison for 12 years. At the age of 18, at the age of 30, he's spent in prison. He doesn't know where his dad is. He doesn't know what his family's doing. He has no connection to anybody. He's lost everything, everything. Now, you know how it ends. He comes out. He begins to have an impact on Egypt. He becomes the most powerful man in the kingdom besides the Pharaoh, and life's good. But then there came a day, and there comes his brothers. You know what he did when he saw his brothers the first time? He wept. This was emotional. This was deep. You don't have this happen, and it'll have profound impact upon you. They live with each other, though, and they seem to get along fine with all that going. But then it comes a day when Jacob had died. And the brothers, whenever they saw this, they saw their father was dead. They said, because this is what they would have done. What if Joseph bears a grudge against us and pays us back in full for everything we did to him? Now, that's how they thought. That's where most people think they're going to get me back now. And they are deathly afraid because he is powerful and he's influential and he can do whatever he wants. So, what they did was, they don't even have the courage to go see him. They send a messenger to, to Joseph. And they say, and the messenger says, please forgive your brothers. They're begging you to transgress your brothers and their sin, for they did you wrong. And they're, they're, they're now, please, if you'll forgive the servants of the God of your father, they're begging him for forgiveness. They don't even have the courage to go. They can't even be a man to stand up and look at a brother and I and said, we did you wrong. We've got to send some kid up there to tell them all of that. If I'm Joseph and I'm the normal person, okay, let's just get even. This is it. You guys, I don't need you in my life anymore. Dad's gone. You're finished. When Joseph heard the words of his brothers, he wept again. He weeped several times through all of this when they're brought into his presence, here's what he said to them. And I think this is profound. you, You know it. You've studied it enough, but it's very profound. Brothers, don't be afraid. I'm in God's place. That's profound. I'm in God's place. As for you, yeah, you meant evil to me. But God meant it for good to bring about the present results of which I'm doing and to preserve the lives of many. You know how you get rid of bitterness? Same way Joseph did. I don't care what's happened within your life. Today you're in God's place. You're at where he wants you to be. Either the Proverbs is right or it's wrong. Man plans his way, but God directs our steps. Either Proverbs is wrong again when it says man steps ordained of God, how can he understand his way? There's something about God at work within our lives that we don't always fully grasp, but I am exactly where God wants me today just like you are. My mom, because of her horrible upbringing, became one of the best women I've ever met in my life and the impact and influence she had at Lamar University. That even this week when I go home and haven't, seen people, in fact, saw very few people I knew in my hometown after all these years. Somebody came up and they heard my name and says, was your mom a teacher at Lamar University? And I said, yes, she was a math teacher. I had your mom. She taught me to love math, which nobody else could do, but she taught me life. I said, that does sound like what mom was doing there towards the end. See, guys, wherever we are in life, I don't care what's happened. let it go. It's through all of that that God's placed you right where you are right now. And is Romans 8, 28 correct? I know we all say, yeah, it's correct. It's truthful, yes. But do you really believe it? It's one thing to say it's God's word, it's correct. It's another thing, Is it a deep conviction of heart. We know, we know what? We know that God calls us all things to work together for good. Those who love him are called according to his purpose. If that is true, then whatever's happened in my life, no matter what you've done to me or someone else has done to me, God has used that to make something good come in my life and in those around me. How can I be bitter about anything? Well, you don't know how I said, yes, I do. Look at what God's doing. Look at where he's brought you. Well, they meant evil. Well, Joseph's brother meant evil. God meant good. An amazing thing came out of his plan. So how can you and I be angry and bitter when we know that God is at work in all that takes place within our life? So as I get rid of bitterness, what do I put there? Because anytime you're told to go away from something, you're told to do something else. So you look at the last verse we wrap down today. Just be kind. Be kind to one another, everybody. The other day, at the, the Friday, when we were getting our... State championship rings. A couple of boys on the team. They didn't get along real well even during the season. They probably hadn't even seen each other since the season's over with. And I'm standing in line getting my food, and they're right in front of me. And one of them turned around and said something very unkind to the other one. And then he turned and went, oh, coach was looking at him. Coach grandpa. He respects me. And I'm looking at him. I said, don't do that again. He'd have never acted that way if he knew I'd been standing there. Do you not know that God's in your presence always, watching you? So well, how how kind are you to your brothers and your sisters? That's not easy. That's almost takes the grace of God to be able to do that. How kind are you to your children whenever you've been stretched to the end of the rope and you're tired and you've worked hard all day and things are a little bit stressful and money may be a little tight. We're called to be kind always. And may I remind you, 1 Corinthians 13 says love is patient, love is kind. It's a second quality. Love's not jealous. In Galatians, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. Kindness is not hard, even though sometimes it's very difficult for us. Just do something good for those around you. Second thing, tenderhearted, tenderhearted. Jesus, when he would see the people, he felt compassion, same word, tenderhearted. He one time went ashore out of the boat. He saw a large crowd. He felt compassion. It's the word tenderhearted. Peter, when he wraps up his first letter and getting into the meat of how to live your life now in the middle of chapter three it says to sum it all up. I want you to be kind hearted. We're called to be kind and tender hearted to everyone. When I got off the phone the other day with GW, I hung up and I just sat there. My study was through because my mind was going all kinds of ways. My wife had just gotten home. She'd gone shopping. She was in the kitchen. She came walking around and I just sitting there and she looked at me and I had tears in my eyes. She said, What's wrong? So I just got off phone with GW. I want to be like GW. I want to finish well. I'm just sitting here amazed. I, I'm, I can't believe I got to be this man's pastor for 30 years. He's just the most amazing. I want to finish well like he did. See, I think the more we get in Christ, the softer our hearts ought to become. So moments like that will bring tears to even a tough old guy, a football coach, military man, known too many of them with these kind of tender hearts that are real. We're called to be tender-hearted because God has been so tender-hearted towards us. But then, let me give you the last reason. You forgive everybody. Why? One simple reason: God forgave you. I don't even need explanation. You're here today because of God's forgiveness. Now you show that. Well, good. You say we don't know what somebody did. Do you know what you did to the Father? You know how your life was against the Son and the Holy Spirit? When you came to Christ, you were made white as snow. You've been made clean, and you're a new creation in Christ. Let it go. Unforgiveness will destroy you, make everybody miserable around you. You're missing out on life. You forgive because God has forgiven you. At the end of Genesis, this is what Joseph said to his brothers. You don't have it in your scripture memory. You read it, you just go on. But it may be the most important word there. He said, therefore, brothers, he's already told them I'm where God wants me. You do not be afraid. I'm going to provide for you and your little ones. And he comforted them and he spoke kindly to those brothers. That's pretty amazing when you consider what Joseph went through. So let me close with this. Why are we to live this way? Well, in the first chapter, we learned something. We've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in every place. We're holy and blameless in Christ. We've been adopted into his family. We're redeemed and forgiven by the blood of Christ. We have an inheritance and we've been given a hope and we have been sealed by the spirit of God. We were dead in our trespasses and sin, but God, by his grace, has made us alive, raised us up, and seated us in the heavenly places. And because of that, he's given us a purpose, and that is to walk in good works. Your very purpose in life is to walk in doing good. And we're part of a bigger work, as we saw in the end of chapter 2. The foundation of what we stand on is the apostles and prophets. Christ is the cornerstone, but we're the the stones in the building. He's building a holy temple that one day he's going to dwell within our midst. And so because of that, we're to be rooted and grounded in love and be filled with the fullness of God. And so on the basis of that, we walk in a manner worthy of the calling that we have in Christ. We work hard to preserve the unity in the spirit. We live out the grace of God that has been given to us. We build up the body of Christ together so we'll have a unity of faith together. And we grow up in faith in Christ Jesus. And so because we don't walk the old way anymore, we walk the new way, we speak truth, not lies. We control our anger. We don't act stupid in our anger. We work hard. We do not look to others to take care of us, but we step up and take care of ourselves. And we do not tear people down by our words. And when we do that, then the spirit of God will not be grieved at his children. Father, we thank you for this day and for the privilege and honor you've given us to study your word. Father, in a sense, I know sometimes this kind of stuff is hits close to home and we go, it's it's impossible. No, it's not impossible. You have made this possible through your presence within our lives. May we remember that we have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer we who live, but Christ lives in us. So the life that we now live, we live by faith in the one who loved us and gave himself for us. And on the basis of understanding his grace and his mercy, we demonstrate grace and mercy to all we come in contact with. We're not threatened. We don't hold on to things. We let it go. We move forward in life and we develop the kind of characters such as my friend GW so that when we get to the end of our lives, we can do as Paul said, I fought a good fight. I finished the course. I kept the faith. There's now laid up for me a crown of righteousness with the Lord will reward to me on that day. So, Father, that's where we want to be. We want to be just like Paul. So do your work in the midst of these people. Help us to grow stronger in your grace and mercy. Help us develop the kind of character that shows the presence of Christ so that it'll have an impact, such as when my dad's father looked at him and said, Son, why is your life different? It eventually led to his dad coming to Christ. So, Father, you do your work in us, and you be glorified. Is my prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.